welcome everyone to the 38th episode of the New Gen Mindset podcast. I am Dan Kozell here with uh, Nick Tartaglia. Nick, precious metals, big space, a lot of stuff happening right now, right? Yeah, and it's odd that it's kicking out, that it's really starting now in 2021 with 2020 because this space has been sort of like in a limbo space for a couple of years, for quite a while. And personally for myself, when I really started off in this journey of precious metals and paying attention to metals and the contrarian framework, this gentleman that we're about to talk to was really one of the, the teachers, I would say for myself, who really showed me the way to look at supply and demand and how market, market gaps can be taken advantage of. It's just a matter of patience. And so it, it really falls in properly with the topic that we're going to talk today about precious metals and EV and copper. So uh, it's definitely going to be fascinating. I think the other thing too, even while we saw GameStop and BlackBerry kind of surge through short squeezes, and that's where all the meme stocks are going. This is a space that doesn't get talked about very much until stuff starts actually moving. So I think it's the best time to do this. So absolutely. Without further ado, um, this gentleman is an investor. He's an author and a futurist who has enlightened many audiences around the world uh, with his unique brand of storytelling. Uh, and he's drawn over two decades of research, frequently interviewed by all sorts of media globally, uh, and is known for the colorful way he decodes complicated modern themes. He's a graduate of electrical studies from the British Columbia Institute of Technology and is an expert in the analysis of global energy and is a sought after keynote speaker who empowers audiences into appreciating the impact of technology and renewable energy. Um, he recently published a book called My, El My Electrician Drives a Porsche, that's a question mark, and was launched uh, by way of a one-of-a-kind journey across America in an all-electric Tesla. And because of that work, he's now credited as the world's first zero-emission book tour author, Both, and he's fluent in English, German, Italian, and Croatian, and is Living in Vancouver, welcome to the New Gen Mindset Podcast, Gianni Kovacevic. So nice to be here with you guys. And we're going to tell some stories. Of and course. I, I don't know where your audience is listening or, you know, what's going on, but generally who's listening to this podcast? Let's so what's going this, on. Uh, the baseline of our, our purpose of this was really that we want to target more of the millennial framework because... As you know, going ahead into the future, the baseline of where we're, how we're going to improve our ecosystem in terms of how we're going to properly optimize the utility of electrification is really, not only is it driven purely by the precious metal space, but it's one that's going to dominate the millennial era in terms yeah. of millennial generation. Because, you know, I'm 27 years old, Dan, you're how old? 27, 27. as well. So we still have a long time in this, this electrification trend that you always talked about for the last couple of years is one that's really going to dominate the rest of our lives. Yeah. So millennials need to start understanding the relationship of cycles, commodities, and how, the, the, how trends move and how we need to align our capital in accordance to the way the markets move, which falls perfectly in line with yourself and your background. So before we start, I just wanted to, just to give some context at the beginning to those who are listening is like, how did you get this point in your life? How did you come to understanding the life cycles of super of uh, metals and of copper? And like, how did you get to this point in day? Well, everyone has 
a place where they grow up. And depending on where you grow up, there, there are certain overwhelming industries. You know, I, you, if you liken computers and software to Seattle and, and San Francisco, when you grow up in Vancouver or Western Canada, that's commodities and energy. So I'm born in 1974. My parents immigrated from uh, Croatia, it was then Yugoslavia. And we, um, what do you do when you're the son of immigrants? I got into um, this fascination to be a tradesman and I took electrical studies at the British Columbia Institute of Technology. And I became fascinated in the magnificence of electrification. My brother, Mario would follow me uh, into that field and he still does it to this day. And I gotta say, I was pretty good at it. I worked for the biggest company in Canada, Ainsworth. Anyone that is in the field would know that. And, and I became a, a very young boss for their Vancouver office. And that's because I was you know, very proactive. Uh, I, we got into telecommunications when that boom happened and this um, energy savings, which is direct digital control, which for people that aren't in that field, you take tiny little devices that computers control them and they control big devices. And by tweaking that at a, at a very precise level, you save lots of energy. For example, a huge fan would oscillate not at on or off, but you could run it at 15 or 20% and the motor would use a lot less electricity or a pipe, a huge pipe that's got hot water in it Rather than have the valve open or closed, you can open it 10% and then run a lot less water through it and, and it, it saves you a ton of energy. But if you cut all this stuff in half, how does it actually work? What's the utility? There are implications when you go from one form of energy to another. And the biggest trend that's gonna be with us for the rest of your life is this trend to electrification. The greener and cleaner that we create and utilize energy, the more that is demanded of electrification and all the things that make it possible. This is going to be a mega trend and fortunes will be made, not by one thing, but by many things. We've already seen the boom in Tesla, battery makers, technology, the integration of how all these things are gonna work. But these things have already performed and people have perhaps made a lot of money in these things. Now you can go down the food chain and say, okay, what are the picks and shovels? The, the biggest beneficiaries now are gonna be the commodities that make it possible. And there's so much volatility in those industries because they're boom and bust. And I, I, I cannot underline this enough. When, when a commodity goes out of favor, they throw the baby with the bathwater, or as my friend Dennis Gartman would say for people, if you want a cartoon phrase, when they raid the house of ill repute, they arrest everyone, including the piano player. Doesn't matter. And those cycles go negative for six or seven years. So we're in a point now where we had a bit of a mania before in cobalt and lithium and cryptocurrencies and cannabis. You are going to see, in my opinion, a mania is going to ensue in copper because it is the single most important thing that will enable the future of energy and that's electrification and that is something that people need to follow for the next 10 years in my opinion it's a it's a very strong statement too because when the momentum picks up it really picks up and then you don't want to be 
part of the whole chasing trend as a result of that. And I think historically too, copper has always been an indication of economic strength in a country, right? Well, sure. They call it doc, Dr. Copper. It's got the PhD, the economy, but that's the old rule book, Dan. That's, I think, is going to break down. and We can talk about that later. But never invest in the story on page one. That's the efficient market. Invest in the story on page 16, headed to page one. Now, what am I talking about? If you had invested in Bitcoin before anyone talked about it, you made a fortune. If you invested in Bitcoin when it was on the front page of the USA Today three years ago, when it went from 10,000 to 20,000, you might've made some money and then you had your ass handed to you on the way down. And now it's had another resurgence. It's went from, it's went from 4,000 to 40,000 and back down to 31,000. It's already on page one. Yeah. Is that exciting to double your money buying Bitcoin at 20,000 and it goes to 40,000? maybe for some people, what I'm talking about, if you buy the right stocks that cater to the future supply of copper and these electric metals, in my view, there are 10, 20, 30 X returns available for the investor that wants to speculate, but actually wants to do the work to understand the difference between cotton and corn. The market has not taken off yet. It is not on page one above the fold of global media. It is exactly the thing that's going to require all to enable all of these things. And that opportunity is there for you. And it will be there. There's going to be some up and downs volatility, but the blow off mania top to liken it like when Bitcoin went to 20,000 the first time you want to be positioned in copper when it becomes on the front page of Time magazine in the USA today. That's coming. It'll come probably not this year, but in the next couple of three years when everyone's talking about it and people can get themselves acclimated now. So, because, so just to give, just to go back to the beginning here where copper bank, because I, like I've been a long time investor ever since I've been following you, I decided to get into copper bank because obviously, as you know, in the precious metal space, a huge variable to look at is management. And I always like people that could tell a good story that it could explain what their purpose was. It clarifies for me without having to, it doesn't, I'm not confused anymore when I listen to certain individuals speak about their purpose or the business they're in. And what I really liked was how the, the, the framework of a contrarian that you always talk about is very much reflected in the approach of Copper Bank. So can you just talk a little bit about Copper Bank and its purpose in terms of how it applies that philosophical contrarian framework? Yeah. So I'm going to pretend that the people listening to this know nothing about the exploration, exploitation, development of natural resource projects. Yeah, okay, absolutely. so let's, let's just assume that. So for the, not, not to be condescending for those if you're an, an, an engineer listening to this, because you're, you're gonna get some value out of it as well, but I wanna bring it right down so, to make this, uh, to be able to understand this. Natural resources is extraction and it comes out of a piece of property that is in a country, in a jurisdiction. If it's oil, you drill an oil well, you do a calculation, is there oil there? Yes or no? What's the reserve? It's some oil reservoirs are not economic if the price of oil is really low. Very simple. If the price of oil goes much higher, you can then extract that for whatever profit. So what happens when people drill, they have a res reservoir of oil, but unfortunately the price of oil is low and stays low for a long period of time. You do nothing. You cap it, 
and you wait. So you would typically have to pay some kind of a holding cost or a tax to whatever jurisdiction, pro private property owner, and you wait. But what happens when it's negative for two years, three years, four years, five years? That has typically not happened in the oil industry. So they, it usually gets re resurrected by higher oil prices, okay? That's exactly what happens in copper. It is ruinously expensive to drill off a copper deposit. So what I'm, what I'm talking about is you would first have the risk capital to go in wildcat to find a drill hole where, oh, we, we drilled and we found copper. Then you drill, in some cases, hundreds of these, as I say, ruinously expensive drill testing holes. You analyze how much copper is in each area of what is hopefully an ore body. Then you do an engineering study to find out what's the economics to, to extract the copper out of the rock. And it, you come up with a number. And unfortunately, some people spend four, five, six years, and they'll spend $100 million on a particular piece of property. And then the copper price collapses and it stays low and it becomes a bear market and it wears people out and they can no longer afford to pay the, the annual holding cost, or they get into some other type of speculation. They go into cannabis or crypto or the things we talked about before. Now, here's the exciting part for someone like me. I am a contrarian investor. And like Ben Graham, the value investor used to say, a contrarian like myself, I buy from pessimists and I aim to sell to optimists. So what I do, having opened my first account doing these things in 1996, understanding this volatility, when the cycle goes bearish, after a few years, when people have run out of gas, run out of uh, uh, emotion, the, the, just the will to go forward, we come in and we buy their property from them, ideally in, in a partnership way. And here's the, you're gonna call me crazy if I tell you the numbers. From the market cap high of a project to what I buy them for is three or four cents on the dollar. Unbelievable. Or put a different way, how much money did they spend on the project? In, in our portfolio uh, of projects, they spent about 120 million bucks. And then I start buying these things for a few million. Now, that's speculating. And I think that's exactly what Copper Bank has done. So to go a long way around, it, what we own is real estate that has um, an endowment of copper resources, they're not reserves, from historical work programs. So they've been de-risked to a point, and in our view, there are no fatal flaws on these projects other than the fact when copper prices were low, they were uneconomic. When, cop when copper prices go higher, there is some level of economics there but where the real excitement happens is when you start to see uh, closer to the all-time highs. And copper today is trading um, at an eight-year uh, interim high. And if, it, if just the price is right now $3.60 a pound, but the all-time high in copper was $4.5 a pound. So we're, we're not that far from that euphoria level or, or the ebullience. So we're speculating that what we acquired uh, for pennies on the dollar will eventually be worth a dollar on the dollar, but it gets better guys, because when the market returns, people throw money at juniors, it becomes less dilutive. And then we can take 
a few million dollars more and enhance the value of these projects, either by way of optimization on those previous economic studies. Remember the analogy I gave? When, when, when the commodity is too low, it just it isn't economic at all. You cap it and just wait. But when the price is higher, you can start looking at that. What, what does it look, what's the scenario for economics on these projects if the price of that commodity stays at those levels? And then you get the euphoric level where you get the new all-time highs. But we can also get lucky on the drill bit. If we start applying these few million dollars more, we will look at uh, some other areas where we can enhance the value of these projects. And that's where millennial investors should be looking at. If you're looking for not just a double, not just a triple, you can look at historical examples, and I can give you many of these where stocks have went from 10 cents to $10 or a dollar to $100. These are, it's a fantastic industry, but you have to be patient and you have to embrace the volatility. And you are right now very early, if you liken it to a hockey game, in the first period. We are not even at the halfway point of the first period. So there's a lot of action to take place. There's going to be some trials and tribulations. But uh, it's well worth it. And if uh, just to promote myself, if you really want to have someone spoon feed you in a fun and informative way, read my book. Yeah, it's you can get it on Amazon in hardcover, softcover. It's an ebook, and for those that like listening, it's on Audible.com. It's about five hours, and it really takes you through um, the paces. It's about a young electrician who enlightens his family doctor, a baby boomer, and they go on this journey of enlightenment on the future of energy emerging markets in the role that commodities, but specifically the role that commodity or copper will have um, for, for this coming decade, the decade of electrification. So what do you, what variables do you see? Because obviously, you know, there's so many factors, macro, there's a lot of going on in the macro environment. So what variables are you looking at specifically that, that's giving you that tailwind that you see prices pushing in the direction you want it to go? Well, copper is unlike many other commodities because copper is heavily recycled. So people would say, well, hold on a second. If they're recycling copper, maybe the price goes higher. We could just use copper that's already been produced. Not exactly that way. In almost every example, when you recycle something, it's being replaced. So if, if you and I own a building, two-story building, we scrap it. They try to salvage as much as they can, the copper, but we redevelop the site. And now we build a 30-story tower. Or if we recycle an old car from 20 years ago that didn't have power windows and air conditioning, the car that it replaces it is a car that has all those deluxe features. So recycling isn't quite there. And it's only about 16, 17, 18% of the market. We must have new supply. And, and the CAGR growth rate for copper, because it's so pervasive throughout the global economy, irrespective of, of green energy, it's, just, it's used. The more people consuming more things, you've got a very reliable 2% CAGR growth rate, compounded annual growth rate in copper, irrespective of all the things that we're talking about. But this is a new era. And, and I used to say, I submit to you or I suggest, or in, in my opinion, the future will have no longer. The facts are, and the facts are very hard to, to refute now, that there's going to be an excess of $10 trillion allocated between China, Europe, America, and other economies towards this massive turbo stimulus towards um, a highly... Um, efficient, typically electrical energy infrastructure, the way we create it, be it wind or solar augmented by batteries or natural gas, the way it's utilized, and, and the way it's transferred. And all of that is pervasive user of copper. So you could, you could, you could easily say that the expansion and growth of EV 
and solar power and renewables, all of that is going to correlate with specific metals such as copper. Exactly. And there's, it's hard to understand or appreciate that if you're not an electrical engineer, you actually don't have any comprehension of what enables that, what makes it possible. Think about it. It's, it's, who knows how much copper is in a, a cable or in a building or in a motor or in an electric vehicle or a wind turbine? Nobody. Because they, they say they yeah. simply, it, it's not seen. People don't even uh, correlate copper with electricity, probably. And to, when you look at the numbers, the, a ton of copper, copper is very dense. But if you build one singular wind turbine, so when you're driving through um, wherever in the world, and these things are popping up like mushrooms in, in, the, in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions, one singular um, turbine has, um, for each one megawatt, has four or five tons of copper. Now your typical wind turbine is three or four or five megawatts. So you can imagine how much copper is in one singular wind turbine and, and just multiply that uh, across the board. Your typical solar field, has 400% more copper than it would if it was a, a conventional form of electrical electricity generation. Not 10%, not 20%, 400% more. When you have a, an electric bus, it has five or six times more copper than a regular bus. Same with an electric vehicle, five times more copper per vehicle. So it's, it used to say millimetrical progress and you end up with a big result, not here. I mean, this is just, it's, it's power of magnitude more copper required per every single application. And it's, it's just gonna be, it's a very exciting industry to follow and to, to speculate in. And there's many, many ways you can do that. It's, it, it's very interesting too, because um, it's almost like, you know, cause in an entrepreneur's mind, they're always thinking about scaling, right? Scaling, building that business. You know, you start out, you try to get to that first million, you make it to the 10 million, you're scaling your business. I find copper now it's scaled in terms of like, the total usage, and it's only going to go exponential at this point, right? So, um, and you touch base on the on 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 the story there with your book. Um, one of the biggest challenges that a lot of you know devil's advocates are talking about right now is like, well, Tesla—they've only done so much. They've only been around for you know twelve years. Is it sustainable? Like, what other uh, resources? that are similar to copper, do you think will experience sort of that next big shift? And when do you think that's gonna happen? When we're talking about electrification, there's, there's only two things that will conduct the electricity uh, at that scale. It's aluminum and copper. There, there is no substitute. And, and so um, copper has not went through its mania phase yet. Some other things have, but they're actually going through resurgence. I also believe that lithium is something that's gonna have a, a it's gonna have 10X growth. And that's coming right now. It's happening in real time. And people should be looking at, at that. Um, it's went through a couple cycles, right? So it, you have to be careful because nothing goes up forever. Even copper, it'll have a big blow off top and it will come off. And there's a time to be in, there's a time to be out. And, and we've positioned ourselves before the blow off top that, you know, that we can unlock value or, or capture some of that upside. Um, people should also look at, and this is, you probably can't even spell it, but scandium. Scandium is, is so interesting because it makes aluminum just so much cooler, lighter, stronger, more weldable, um, better conductor for electricity. I mean, across the board, it's just, it, it, there's not a lot of it, but it's something that's gonna have a, a huge, you know, I believe it's gonna have a 20X growth 
long as the deposits are there and there are some that 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 are available to be built and i think that will feed into the aluminum industry and another one is helium helium is used um, not just for balloons it's used all over the economy it's used in mris it's used in barcode scanners but it's also used in the aerospace industry it's used in in um in um uh, spacex and blue horizon blue origin they use them. I was told just recently, I was on a call, I invested in a helium company. One singular launch of a SpaceX, of the small SpaceX craft, takes $4 million worth of helium. The big one takes $12 million worth of helium for, for each takeoff. And there's a huge now, shortage in that market, correct? Huge shortage, you know, and it's been the, something that the prices have went bonkos. And I invested in a, in a helium speculation play last year, speculating with good science, with good guys. And the stock went up a thousand percent. Wow, that's a pretty good outcome. And I'm, I'm yeah. I still own it. I, th I still think it's got a big future. But um, the risky part was: Do you have the helium? Okay, they drilled. They have these high grade and under high pressure in a great area. It's in the on the Arizona New Mexico border, which is proximity. You lose helium when you transport it. It still dissipates. So location very important. It's a gas too. That's why. Right? It's a gas. Yeah, exactly. But it's it, it, it's interesting. And that's we we found that that corner. I was I think one of the first guys in global media talking about it and it's been a pretty good outcome. So here we are again. And, and you know, people are um, skeptical, I guess, of many things. And I think uh, I have a lot of experience driving electric vehicles and where they're going. And it's not just Tesla, it's about the whole industry changing and many reasons that, that that's been delayed, but that's now being accelerated. I don't know if your listeners would be interested in some of those stories, but it's, um, it, it's almost comical. Some of the, um, a negativity or the disbelief or, or what have you of, of the of the actual technology that, that people simply would not uh, would not uh, try or embrace but but it's it's here and the, the future is now as we like to say what, what what's one example since we're since we're on the, the discussion i guess of uh well, you know, the, the naysayers as they as they call them that's a good one uh, here's one everyone probably thinks not to talk about the obvious one oh teslas are too expensive it's not about <laughs> tesla it's um they're overvalued it's not about Tesla. We don't care about that. Um, here's a great story. So when I was in Texas and I, I did a, a book tour across America and I was driving an electric vehicle and I went through Houston and San Antonio and Austin, but the guys in Houston said, you know, when you get to Dallas, we're going to tell you where you should stay because the hotel does not have electric vehicle charging. What you going to do? And I said, well, um, the way this works, you, you can plug the car into just a receptacle. The only hindrance is that it just takes more time. But what I'm going to do is when I get there, I'm going to be staying the night and I'll do it at that point. And what I did for the hotel manager is I made a bit of a joke out of it. I parked right, right in the lobby in the, in the, where, you, where you come in, they plug the car in right in the, in the wall receptacle so I could, you know, people could look at it, take pictures and explain to them that this is already there. Now, there's a point to this story. The point I'm trying to illustrate is that distributed electricity is already global. It's in every single structure around the world. So for, it doesn't matter if you live in an apartment building in Frankfurt or, or in a house in rural Quebec, you simply plug it in. Now, if you wanna have faster charging, you would then hire an electrician to give you a, a 220 volt receptacle so that you could charge the vehicle uh, definitively um, in six to eight hours, depending on uh, the, the configuration that you get in the, the car that you buy. But certainly you do this when you're sleeping. And then 
you have people say, well, hold on a second, mister. What happens if everyone comes home at five o'clock and they all plug their electric vehicle in at the same time? Well, they wouldn't do that. Electricity at five o'clock is very expensive. Electricity at 10 o'clock or at midnight is very cheap. So using some basic common sense, I'm going to guess consumers are going to vote with their wallet. They're not going to come home and get ripped off by paying 4x more for their electricity when they can just wait till they're sleeping and do it then and pay very little. So the, the, the system is on and it very a lot far fewer people are using electricity at night because everyone turns their lights off and they're not doing in industry like you would at four in the afternoon or two in the afternoon. So you have to use a little bit of common sense that that's what will what will occur. So you don't need to fortify the entire electrical system. This is complete nonsense. This is not true. And then people say, well, where's the electricity going to come from? Is it going to come from coal or is it going to? Well, who cares? If you're talking about a city like London that's got 10 million people, even if it was coal, you do one coal-fired power plant 80 kilometers outside of town, but every vehicle inside of London is now no longer spewing diesel fumes. It's, it's, a, it's a more of a comfort thing, you know? So that works. And then the naysayer will say, well, hold on a second. If people aren't buying gasoline, we pay taxes when, we, when you have gasoline and they fix the roads and they build bridges and things like that, which is not what governments do. They steal that money and do other things. But, but, but sure, there is a heavy tax. Government will not allow them to drive electric vehicles. People say, well, that too is not true because what you would do is you install a GPS in the vehicle. The more you drive, the more you will pay. If you're a grandma and you never drive your vehicle, you will not pay a lot of tax. If you're an Uber driver, and you drive 150,000 kilometers a year. So instead of fueling and paying a lot of tax at the pump, every time you go there, you will do it simply. The more you move, the more you will pay and government will get their pound of flesh. And you can go on and on and on. It is a far superior in entirety of a business model to build electric vehicles, to service electric vehicles, as a consumer to use them, the charging, you know, Talk about either doing it at your home, but people that don't want to do that, or if you live in an apartment building and, and, and you have no interest in that, um, you can then go to fast charging and pay. It's still a better business model to build a bank of chargers, fast chargers, which is what, what, what companies are doing in, in cities around the world. You would simply um, build eight or 10 superchargers, which you can permit very quickly. You can build for about 200 or $300,000, maybe more depending on the location. And the amount of money you make per fueling is far superior and it can be toggled in real time. So Tesla in Vancouver, they may pay $7 or $6 for the electricity, but they'll sell it to you for $12. They make $5 every time you charge. There's nobody working there. It's fully automated. And as, as I told you, it's a lot cheaper to build and you can, you can proliferate this throughout the city as, as, as much as demand is there. It's a better business case, irrespective of all the bumper sticker issues. That, that's what you would do if you were an alien and you came from space and that's what you wanted to fuel a billion of vehicles. That's how you do it today in the future. If you can get enough batteries built right now, that's, that's the, the, the back yeah. is that can they actually get this done? And that's the, the deterrent to make them economic and in and, and a vast enough quantity that you can actually build 30 or 40% of the vehicle fleet per year uh, as electric vehicles. So it's not today, but it is this trend that's going to be with us for the next decade. So I have, I have, so I have in my mind another, this is more of a speculative like outlook. 
would something like, for example, the plan to build out the infrastructure of Africa or India or of the more of the rural areas of China, would that not be more validation for the price of copper since, well, if we need, because as you know, you've always said that there's a massive constraint on the supply of copper because of the fact that the prices are not economical. And as a result, big the big players haven't really put extra ex- capital into new mining projects. So that future outlook of potentially, let's say, Africa, uh, Africa building out its infrastructure, rural China, India, would that not give more validation as well to the output of uh, the price of copper? Yeah, and I think that's, the, that's the, the trend of more people consuming more things, which is traditionally, for the past decades, given us a, a, about a 3% CAGR growth rate in copper. And, and that trend will continue. But it's going to be a little different because the way your parents received their first electricity or your parents' parents, if they immigrated from India or if they immigrated from Europe or wherever, or South America, wherever they would have come from, that was a very unsophisticated way to do things. It's going to be more localized. There's going to be where it's possible. You're going to have local energy, like be it solar panels or wind panels. So you're not going to, for example, make a hydro jam in northern Manitoba and ship the electricity a thousand or two thousand kilometers. It will happen in some places, but not 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 in all cases. And that too is very copper intensive. And we have now um, about a billion people, just under that. It's about a billion people still do not have access to readily available daily, morning to night, electricity. And I- Globally, right? Globally, I'm I'm not gonna speculate, um, but I don't think it's a stretch to say that almost all of these people are gonna have it by the end of this decade. So that's that that trend. The difference is, it's not gonna be the way you or your parents received it. So when they received their first electrification, it's gonna be more, copper per person because it, it'll, it'll be all these things we just talked about it's not going to be the the old way it'll be the new way and it is actually per product per application per megawatt of utility takes more copper to, to make it possible and they're going to do that because it's the future and and that's where the technology is going and you can you can give many many examples where even in africa tiny village a few simple solar panels interconnected with a battery so that they can actually charge a phone or run a hot kettle or, or run a refrigerator periodically, you know, these kind of things. Very copper so, intensive. So the, the, so basically we could say that the optimism of the human expansion in specific um, continents is also a big significant validation to the super cycle that's basically starting to kick off itself. Yeah, and this is the, the new super cycle. Before, people that are younger probably didn't live the first innings of the China super cycle. That's when the Chinese economy has grown so much that it's getting ready to surpass the U.S. economy. It already has on, on purchasing parity, power of parity. Um, so they're the two biggest global economies, of course. Everyone probably knows that. And now comes... You know, a lot of the other countries have already lifted themselves. We've lifted billions of people out of abject poverty over the last uh, sort of 30 years since this whole globalization thing has played out. Now it's a little bit going the other way. I think countries mm-hmm. are coming back in and want to have a little bit less globalization as we've seen the trade tariffs yeah. and now even Brexit and, and, and things like that. But, you know, 
the, these themes are, are very profound and you can talk about it for days. You can tell stories, but ultimately your guys, what is some advice to make money with it? How can you profit from it? And if you're a simple guy, you're 19 years old or you're 25 or you're 30, first thing you have to do is open, if you're Canadian, open a tax-free savings account right yeah. now. Don't worry about RSPs because you eventually have to pay tax on that. Get your TIFSA started or topped up. And you can then start speculating on with that part of your portfolio. And if you're, you're young enough that you can do this, you can take those risks. The older you get, you, you, you want to go away from risk. But if you're a younger audience, that's something you want to look at. So is your audience mostly Canadian? Yeah, global. well, I mean, Man. we have we have global, but we have because we're from Montreal. So Montreal is still a, it's a very close network. So we know a lot of people around here, but yeah. we do have people over the world that, that, that watches sure. our stuff. But, but buying low and selling higher, and you know, is a good thing. And, you know, of course. So Dan, do you, you would agree that a, a TIFS, you guys both have your TIFS. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. 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 the best wealth creator in the <laughs> world. That's the, right? that's the first, that's the first priority. Then it went to RSP. Then it went to a non-registered account. So, yeah. the, you know, so you have your hierarchy. Yeah, you, you can put $6,000 now before it was five. They, so it's $6,000 into a TIFSA. So what does one do with $5,000? If you're looking back, you're, you're not looking to make 5% of that money. Okay, that's, that's what you do later in life. And that's what you do a different part of your portfolio. But I would be buying these um, undervalued um, copper juniors. Now I'm going to shamelessly promote Copper Bank because I think it has... Absolutely. Um, it's a good story. And uh, we, we, as a group, um, I, we have a very strong team at Copper Bank. And the, the, the group has been assembled over many years. We have a lot of adult supervision, over 300 years of collective experience. These are geologists and engineers who have been working, them for, working the projects forward with me. And uh, we think that the, uh, the, the stock is undervalued based on a few different parameters. So the market capitalization is about 28 million bucks. Okay, so what's that worth in a higher copper price environment? I'm speculating that the market will, will, will revalue the projects we own. Um, we know that statistically speaking, the previous operators spent about $120 million. So there's a 5X return just to, just to get back to the money that was already spent there. And it, because they were stock listed companies, the companies I bought, if you ask the question, well, okay, during a time of euphoria, wh what was the market cap high of all that stuff once upon a time past his prologue? Well, it was about $250 million. So that is a 10x return. If you could, you know, stretch the imagination a little bit without doing, you know, get, getting into too many adjectives and verbs, we know that nine years ago, before the cycle collapsed, I bought this stuff in 2014, 16, and 18. Remember when it was a bear market, buy low, sell high? They raised their money when the market was a bullion. There's a 10x differential between where we trade at today and where the market was. So that's interesting. That's a good metric. And then we can take the me, my team. We're working very hard towards enhancing the value of the portfolio. When we get um, uh, progress by the drill bit, with the studies that we're doing, enhancing some of those economic studies using different scenarios for copper prices, you know, we believe that we, we as a team can unlock the value in the portfolio that if the right planets align, could we see a market cap that, that, that justifies something 
um, like it was maybe even better than it was in 2011 for, for, for previous highs. And so I think if people have association with, with these themes that we've talked about, that's one place where you can put or park your a portion of, of TFSA type money, or this is risk capital. This is not investing. You're speculating with Copper Bank, but you're speculating on all the things I talked about. Yep. And, you know, I, I can still say we're closer to the bottom than we are the top mm-hmm. for the value of what we bought and where we are in the cycle. So you're, you're very good timing, early innings, early in the hockey game, call it what you will. But I think you know, getting more acclimated, um, knowing the difference between cotton and corn, comparing different companies, Look at a stock chart. You don't want to buy a stock chart that goes from the bottom of your screen and it's already bursting through the top of the of the other side of the screen. You know, you don't want to be the last guy buying these things. Yeah. You want to be buying it when the contrarian. This is where you, you want get to be the, the whole contrarian. contrarian. That's where that exactly. comes in. So you you know you can look at a stock chart. You can tell what's overvalued and what's undervalued, or what has started to move. The trend is your friend, but it hasn't went parabolic, and you feel like a jerk buying it um, after it's already went up a thousand percent. That that, that that very important. And you should definitely be a seller. You double, triple your money in these things, take a little bit off the off the table and speculate somewhere else as well. But this is it. where this is where um for example, Copper Bank, you always talked about uh how you guys are focusing on potentially becoming a royalty company. And I know that one of the most successful type of mining companies or resource companies are often tied royalty companies, Franco Nevada, Metalla Royalty, uh, uh they've been big successes. Exactly. And I know that that was like, I know that's something that you have heavily talked about as Copper Bank is that the possibility of becoming a royalty company is very much there. So can you just talk a little bit more about royalty companies and that, 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 that perspective of that type of uh, framework? Yeah. So what's a royalty company? A royalty company owns a a small percentage of the future revenue stream uh, of an asset. And when you talk about natural resource projects, usually these are sold before it's in production or when it's more risky, you sell a small portion for small money. When it becomes an operation and when the commodity price is high, those royalties just mint money for the, for the, for the underlying owner, right? So in, with Copper Bank, we, we talked about we have copper uh, exploration projects. They're not in production. This is real estate. And we're speculating that the, the higher copper price and the hard work that me, uh, you know, like my team is working on, will be able to um, advance them. And so what happens when I start doing the monetization part of the business model? Well, because we have two large acreages with these uh, copper resources endowed uh, in the ground, you know, if we're successful in moving these forward, I'm not simply going to just sell a project to someone for a profit. That's a nice outcome. And and we do look to do that, but we also have the opportunity to hold back and and keep a a fair royalty on each project. And then perhaps that becomes its own business, or perhaps we can spin that into another company that's already doing this type of business, or perhaps we can be the spark plug to create a new copper royalty company where the value in the beginning is lower because these projects are not in production, but as they are de-risked, and that's a speculation, as they move down the development arc, which is, which is a speculation that that does occur, but when it does occur, the value of this royalty has tremendous um, growth. And so we want to provide that for people as well, where we, we have that type of business within Copper Bank. And that's unique because usually a recycled mineral property in oil or metals they already have a royalty. Someone already was the prospector. There was a previous operator. They, they own the royalty and they've moved it on. 
it's not available. We just happen to have two opportunities where it is available and we're not stupid. We're not going to sell them with, 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 with that uh, embedded inside. We're going to capture that and, and segregate it and share it with our shareholders. And it's a, it's, it's a really interesting business for, for all commodities, but I think specifically for copper, because there's not a lot of people doing it. As a, as a personal investor, I just want to say it is, it, I do like hearing all these things. And I definitely also do like the, um, the way you go about controlling your dilution through private placement, usually always at a higher market uh, price point, like you just did recently, in order to kind of validate management's involvement and, yeah. uh, and to not dilute the stock too much. So you, could you maintain that, that, that strength for shareholders? Yeah, well, junior mining companies are famous for being lifestyle companies where the people who manage them own very few shares and they will incessantly raise capital and dilute the company or the value per share because they don't care. What they care about is raising some money so they can take a salary, have really nice expense accounts, drain the treasury and do it again. And they'll do it as much as possible. So we're a little bit different. We're owner operators. We own millions of shares. We hate dilution. We, we are the biggest shareholders. We get diluted and we're not taking big salaries and we don't have big expense accounts. We're looking to monetize on a per share basis so that the value stays with, the, with what the company has. So for example, if you were to do a, a 50% dilutive financing, that's great if you're doing something accretive with that money or, or, or increasing resources per share or, or, or de-risking the project. But if you're not doing that at the end of the year, the money's gone and now all the original shareholders have all been diluted and then yeah. they do it again and again and again so it's not what when you buy the stock what what's in it for me today you have to say what's in it for me two or three years from now so we throw pennies like manhole covers if we raise capital it's we, we must pay taxes we must have expenses i must pay an auditor i must do these things but we we do it with with, with uh, in a measured way and when the price is cheap we raise the capital ourselves and we don't issue these uh, cheap warrants, which is a, the option, but not the obligation to buy the share again at a low price. We have not been doing that. And so, and people can do an audit on that and they can, they can see our, our, our track record, but I think we're very proud on how we've built the company uh, with the current share structure, the, the, the amount of copper resource, historical resource you get per share and how that's been not eroded dramatically it's been eroded you know in a mild way but not in a dramatic way over the past three or four years and um that's something i think people can look at i'm looking at your cap structure right now and um i know nick and i were pretty active in the small cap space i love share structures that look like this because you've only got what is it 77 million shares out couple warrants so realistically about 80 million shares outstanding so the upside is actually really strong right now even with the recent private placement that you guys have had um but and that's him and the private placement was primarily an insider placement well, i'm the lead order and it's still yeah. live actually that's going to be good for another seven eight days because we're, nice. we're getting a couple different types of accredited investors in there and but you're, but you're right. You guys really picked up on that. It's got, it's got the right number because we want it to trade. We don't want to be so tight that it doesn't yeah. trade. People want liquidity. We're, we're trading half a million to a million shares a day. You can come in, you can come out. That's important. And I think that it also, if you were to duplicate what we have, so you can go to another company that has maybe a few, some fewer shares, but where are they? How much more must they drill? What must they do? How much land must they procure? Um, you know, how many economic studies must they do? The metallurgy, you have to pay for all these things. And it's, and I use the word again, I've said it twice, I'll say it one last time. Keep this industry it. 
is ruinously expensive. It costs a lot of money. And, and those guys, my previous operators that we acquired these projects from, 120 million, more than that actually. I'll just you throw that number, 120 million it would take to duplicate all what they did. You know, try raising that money now. Where would my, where would my, where would my share structure be if I had to go raise $100 million under 30 cents? You know, I don't have to do that. It's already yeah. there. Most of that money is already part of my French. It's already went to money heaven. You know, we, you, anyone looking at the company now can look at it from a contemporary sense and the dilution to maintain the portfolio, very important to pay these taxes right now with where we are, 1% per year in perpetuity. That's not uh, draconian. And I think people will be able to tolerate that, but we'll see. We are moving it forward. Uh, the team is uh, boots on the ground starting on January 28th. And we look to deliver a ton of news because that's also important. In junior mining, you want to deliver news. Before we were the bank holding strategy. Now get to work, boots on the ground, deliver news, unlock the value in the portfolio. And for everyone involved, my team yeah. can't eat our shares. We're highly it's, motivated to monetize the strategy. So, the cat, I, it, it's the catalyst stream. It's yeah. a catalyst stream. Exactly. You, Let, you, let's wrap it up, guys. I mean, if yeah. you got any final comments, uh, no, I just want to say, you know, like I, I've, I've, I've been, I've been in this, the comp involved with the company for three years from uh, as a retail shareholder, and I'm, I honestly, I'm enjoying the journey. I even at the beginning it was very much a speculation contrarian, but I always looked at it as if I'm going to learn this space, I'd rather learn it and be involved. We'll have my capital involved with people and management and companies that can educate me at the same time. So I, you know, like as I getting to meet you, thank you because I really lot, I, I learned a lot through you. So yeah. I appreciate it a lot. No, we're fun. We're here. We work hard. We take it very seriously. And um, I think like JP Morgan once said, go as far as you can go. When you get there, you'll see farther. Absolutely. So it, it, you know, the journey is the reward. And so, yeah. Gianni, thank you so much for coming on. Um, one last thing, where, where can the, uh, the yeah. listeners find you guys? Well, copperbankcorp.com, the energy zone. I just did a, a keynote for a European bank, really about copper and energy and, and how that's changing. That's there. It's on the website. It's the first video. And if you like energy, you'll, you'll love that one. It's, I think I did a really good job there. And I think that the graphics are amazing. I got 70 incredible graphics on that one. So people will enjoy that. And then, um, sign up. You can, you can opt in. We, we never, never send spam. If people have to go there and register and then, then you'll be on our uh, list where we send typically copper and energy related information, but we also send you the, the copper bank um, information. If people are going to, are going to speculate and, you know, take a look at a TIFSA and, and, and have a piece in copper bank, you're going to want to follow that and follow our journey through what I believe is going to be an exciting 2021 and beyond for all the copper bank shareholders. Of course. That's awesome. Listen, thank Gianni, you. thank you again for coming on. We understand, you know, it's a short interview, it's but we got meatballs ready to go here. <laughs> there you go. It's dinner time. Thanks for coming on. Thank Hopefully you. you'll come back on another time when, uh, when, thank when, you. in a few years, but uh, no, appreciate it. Keep up the good work. Thanks again. Thank you. Well, I think that was a very quick and insightful discussion into yeah. an industry and a sector that, nobody really talks about but and from a, a pro and an expert that um that you can learn a lot from just listening to him whether it's getting involved with the company or just learning by just listening to him and reading his work 
there's so much to learn from these type of people. It's I'm, I'm happy this guy came on. Yeah. So we want to, again, we want to thank Gianni for coming on and uh, we're definitely going to bring him back on when uh, copper really starts taking off. But yeah. uh, for those of you that didn't catch it, the uh, ticker on that one for copper bank resources is uh, CBK on the CSE. Um, they're also listed on the Frankfurt under nine CP and then OTC markets in the U S CPPKF. So, I mean, it's a very interesting opportunity, but you got to be careful. It is speculation. Be be risk conscious. Don't throw. I've been in them. I've been in them. I've been in them for three years and I've only just started to see my returns this year. Copper has done relatively well in terms of price. So I'm up on my position with them, even though it's taken a little over three years to get to this point, I'm about 80% up now. 80, 90% 80, 90% up, but it's just the beginning of the super cycle. So, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm almost on a double, but it took a little over three years to get to this point. And the price was relatively flat for a while. So this price appreciation has only really occurred this year. Yeah. And I think the key with precious metals is be patient. Absolutely. Very, honestly. very patient. Right? And we're really at the beginning too. So if you want to place your capital now and take some risks, create a basket of different companies and stuff like that, Copper Bank is at least in my perspective as a shareholder, I definitely recommend it to people. Full disclaimer, we did not get paid to promote. Absolutely not. (laughs) This is merely just because we enjoy these people. Pure passion. Exactly. And by meeting these people, we learn more, you know? So exactly. Guys, thanks so much for listening. Check out our newsletter as always, newgenmindset.com. We'll see you next time. Ciao guys.